This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. What do you want to talk about, though? Seriously. I don't know. Not do you believe things. in magic? I don't know the rest of that song. Did you ever believe in magic? Interesting. Did I ever believe in magic? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're wondering about magic this week. We're ostensibly a book podcast <laughs> where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. I read The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. We're going to talk about that. There's a lot of magic in that book. Andrew, I don't know. Um, One time there- I wrote a letter to Santa Claus and I left it outside my like the fireplace and then it was gone later i'm fairly certain one of my sisters just like took it and like threw it away or something. sure <laughs> i don't have super strong memories of believing in any particular kind of magic ex- aside from like the tooth fairy santa claus like that school of yeah is of there a magic? name for that school of ma- like school of just like parent parental <laughs> parental lied school of magic i'm a level um, level five parental lie wizard yeah but there was, there was, I was given one of the, you know, the bottles of like bubble, bubble juice and you it had the <laughs> wand in it and you blew bubbles with it. I don't oh. know what it was like. Soap, I guess. Yeah. Okay. You know, bu- bubble juice. <laughs> Here's a bottle of dial soap and a wand. Go for it. Go to town. And the, the bottle said magic wand inside. Oh, snap. And so I was like blowing bubbles with this wand thing. And I was like, huh, well, I wonder where the magic wand is. Like, maybe I just need to blow all these bubbles to. Man, I can't wait to see what I do, can do with my magic wand. <laughs> I think I, I, I'm fairly certain that uh, one of the girls I dated in high school was like a witch. Well, <laughs> aspired to be like, okay. as, like I don't know that because like people are Wiccans, like that's a thing. Yeah, and I don't know that she actually was, but she wanted to be, like in the hot topic way. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so I I think that's the closest I ever came like if there was magic of that variety in my life that's where it was I don't think I haven't met a witch or a warlock I I don't think there are elves in my house Mm -hmm. or no are there borrowers in your house (laughs) there could be I, I we have we sometimes leave food out not on purpose they could come get a snack more likely okay, a mouse would show up. Let's let's books. You want to? You don't want to just jump to the books? Yeah, let's talk about Susan Cooper and then let's talk about The Dark Is Rising. I mean, that's yeah, that sounds reasonable. Probably yeah, what, that's what, probably what, what people are here for. Probably what people expect us to do. No, let's like let's have a weird conversation about magic for like five more minutes. <laughs> I'm on board. You, um, <laughs> Susan Cooper was born in 1935. And she originated. She was originally from England, and then she moved to the U.S. in the early '60s. Mm-hmm. Um, she lives in Massachusetts currently, I think. Correct. And um, so she's she's written a whole bunch of stuff 
Um, and this Dark is Rising series of books is probably the most, like, the thing that she's known best for. Yeah, it's, um, um, it's yeah. like, won the Newbery Honor. She received the Margaret A. Edwards Award in, I believe, 2012 for this whole, for what she calls the Dark is Rising sequence. Yes. Which is not a word I've ever heard applied to, like, a set of books. It's always, like, a fantasy thing. It's always a, yeah. It's like, oh, this is a sequence. You can't just call it a series. It's a sequence. Yeah, it is. Um, Um, And a lot of other cool people have have won that award, which is about, it's for young adult fiction. And I took note of this because it actually seems relevant to the book. Uh, Books that help adolescents become aware of themselves and addressing questions about their role and importance in relationships, society, and in the world. Uh, Terry Pratchett has won it. Madeline Lengel's won it. Judy Bloom, Ursula Le Guin. Um, and recently, a guy, David Levithan, I think is his name, who wrote Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, among others, which is like a movie I never saw. Um, right. But yeah, so it's a pretty good group of people, and she received it for her work, specifically the whole sequence. The entire sequence. And then, yeah, The Dark is Rising specifically, which is the second book in the series. We mm-hmm. can talk a little bit more about where it fits, I guess, Sure. when we start talking about the book. Um, that book specifically is the one that won the Newbery Honor, which is the the runner-up. And then The Grey King, which is, I think, is it the third book? It's one of the other books in the series. It is the, sequence, the, fourth, I'm sorry. the fourth book in the sequence. Okay. Uh, that one actually won the Newbery Medal. Okay. Cool. So cool, cool. the series has won it. Yes. Perhaps through not. Through that one book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, she uh, when she was working for the Sunday Times, she worked under James Bond author Ian Fleming. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, she was at Oxford when both uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were there. She was the first woman editor of the undergrad newspaper, which is pretty oh, cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, her debut novel is a sci-fi book called Mandrake. Uh, the Dark is Rising series is what she's known best for. She also did a World War II inspired novel in uh, 1970 i think called donna fear that was based on her experiences um in the war now she was she was born like four years before world war ii started and Mm -hmm. so most of her memories are of like oh we had to turn all the lights out so that the bombers couldn't see couldn't see the houses Uh like Uh that kind of stuff um and she wrote some stuff about like how world war ii like influenced and affected her writing and her point of view that I thought was interesting. This is on her website, which is a uh, thelostland.com. It's called The Lost Land of Susan Cooper. I love so, it. That's a cool name. I love I love people who are so confident that their website name does not need to be their name. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's pretty great. <laughs> um there were two things about that childhood that helped me tur- that helped to turn me into a writer of fantasy. Since we weren't allowed out after dark, every house in England was blacked out at night to be invisible to the bombers, and there was no television. I read everything I could find, from fairy stories to Dickens, and since every air raid was a reminder that an enemy was trying to kill us, I developed a very strong sense of us and them, good and evil, the light and the dark. Hmm. Good quote. Good quote. Very good point of view to have for a fantasy writer where everything is always black and white, and there are good things and bad things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never the twain shall meet. And yeah. they, that's another conversation to have maybe is like lack of gray area <laughs> in like every children's <laughs> fantasy series. Yeah. Well, Redwall, like Redwall's kind of racist about it. Even. Yeah, it is. That's, they've got a <laughs> whole. Some mm. races are always bad and some are always good. And there are a couple of books 
I know there are a couple books where like a good person, a good animal was raised by bad animals and then the bad animal was raised by good animals. But I think in the end, <laughs> like their nature ended up winning out. Yeah, that's their, that would make their sense. Upbringing. Yeah. But that's a tricky thing because I don't know that kids of a certain age are ready to handle you know, world engulfing ambiguity. Yeah, like everybody sucks a little and is cool a little. That's what being a teenager's for. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, being a teenager is when no, you being embrace a teenager the dark. Is you like, yeah, being a teenager is when you overcompensate. Like when you're sliding on the ice and you oversteer and you go into a dish. That's what being <laughs> being a teenager is. Just like everything is evil. Everyone sucks. It's all terrible. Being a teenager is living in a ditch, <laughs> an right. evil ditch. And then once you get towed out of the ditch by. Your parents, I guess, probably. <laughs> you can get back on the road to adulthood. <laughs> where ambiguity and, yeah, and shades of gray are things that you can deal with. Yeah. Or maybe not deal with. And You should write a book about about childhood development. Uh, yeah. with a, <laughs> We'd be experts at it. We were children and we developed ostensibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting thing, I had heard of this book sort of i know that it was um the book was adapted into the 2007 movie the seeker yes um which sucked i guess like cooper didn't like it because it changed quite a few plot points um it has a 14 percent on rotten tomatoes it made 31 million dollars on a budget of 20 million dollars so like that's not great for a movie and this was yeah 2007 is like right in the middle of the harry potter film thing Mm-hmm. Um, you're still like a, just a couple years out from Lord of the Rings. Um, mm-hmm. You've got like that Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events movie in there. Like there was a lot of there was a big rush, I guess, to get like children's fantasy properties and make them into movies. And this one uh, did not end up on the right side of that critical line, I guess. No, and it's a shame because it had Ian McShane in it. Uh, from oh, Deadwood, yeah. it had Christopher Eccleston, who is a former Doctor Who, uh, Francis Conroy, like one they, of the Doctors Who, yeah, of the Doctors Who. They put some resources into it. Uh, apparently, it opened in over three thousand theaters mm-hmm. and had the second worst debut of all time for a, a movie opening in that many theaters, behind only the Luke Wilson family film Hoot. <laughs> about Luke Wilson and Brie Larson trying to save an owl-like home from the guy who plays Agent Coulson in the Marvel movies. So I can't imagine. Man, all right. Like, that's some steep competition. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, but in ju- just reviewing a, the summary of that film, they did change a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it's probably not for the better. Yeah. I, I do want to thank Lena, who is the one who recommended We Read The Dark Is Rising. Uh, and she is a Patreon supporter, and that's how uh, it is on the show here. But I knew about this book uh, because I remember when that movie came out, the main character's name is Will Stanton. And I have a good friend named Will Stanton. Yeah. And I was so excited to see him in that movie, but I never saw it because it was bad. Uh, so, like, hanging out with him in this book. I just imagine Is that why, is that why our time. friend Will Stanton was never in another movie after that? <laughs> never Nobody would hire him? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I have anything else about Cooper. Um, she did write a little bit about how her homesickness for England like influenced her writing. So the the um, the Dark is Rising series draws a lot on like British and Welsh mythology and like folk heroes mm-hmm. and stuff. And and part of the reason for that is just like her 
you know, she's in the U.S. Um, she's, you know, she's married. She has a couple of kids. She's learning a lot of hobbies. She says, I learned to drive, to ski, to cook enormous meals for teenagers and graduate students and tried rather less successfully to understand American football. Um, I return regularly to England for visits, but my homesickness never went away. So some of that manifests in her writing. And I'm interested to hear if there is any, if there are any like particular tie-ins to mythology that you want to talk about. Oh yeah, sure. There's at least one that's a really good example, but okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, tell me more about this book. So it's about Will Stanton. Uh, mm-hmm. our friend, Will, Stanton. our friend, Will Stanton. And, uh, he's 11 years old. He's the youngest of six living in a small village off the river Thames. His dad's a jeweler, uh, his oldest brother Stephen is like off in the armed forces in the West Indies, I believe. And his birthday's really close to Christmas, so like it always gets overlooked. I don't know if you have any friends. That must that be per- hard. Yeah, yeah. I know a couple of people with that particular problem, and it seems like their families are doing a good job with it. But- My brother's birthday is on January 11th, so oh. it always feels like. Like you just get the left like the table scrap presents. Like yeah. if there's some little thing on his list or something from Christmas that he didn't get, like that's the that's his birthday present, which You're, is I guess is good. But I get like why maybe you just want that for Christmas and then you want your birthday to be its own thing. It's, I don't know. Yeah, it's really tough. It kind of if you're still within spitting distance of eating leftovers from a holiday, like that's a shame. Like, you could still have some leftover ham from Christmas. You could be, yeah, I wouldn't want to be eating three-week-old ham, but you could still have, like, candy and stuff left. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Have some of my three-week-old Christmas ham. The color gives it taste that mm-hmm. you will enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Will is kind of getting lost in the shuffle of his family. All he really wants for his birthday uh, is snow, actually. He really wants it to snow and have, like, a nice wintry birthday. And he notices, like, as he's going about the the day before his 11th birthday, that animals are acting a little weird by him. He, like, walks by a radio and it statics out a little bit. Uh, and just odd stuff is going on. And he is doing his chores and he has to go to the Farmer Smith, or no, Farmer Dawson, excuse me. <laughs> the Farmer Smith. He has to go to the Farmer Smith. He has to go to Farmer uh, Dawson's place and like pick up some pick up some stuff for his mom. And he's like, oh, I, I knew it was your birthday tomorrow, so I wanted to give you this present. I know that not everyone remembers your birthday because of Christmas and everything. Did you mention what time period this is supposed to be? Is this uh, supposed to be like contemporary with the book's writing? Contemporary with the book's writing. They have, okay, so they the have a television, but don't late, use it. Late 60s, early 70s? Yes. Um, and there is electricity, etc. cetera. Uh, and he's like, oh, great, a present from one of the people in the village. That's wonderful. What is this? Oh, it's a, an iron ring uh, that's shaped like a circle. And not like a w- ring you would wear on your finger, but it's like a mandala is the term. It's a circle with a cross inside of it. Like a, okay. Kind of like a Simon Says, if that helps you, Andrew. Like the like game. A, like the game Simon. It's not called Simon Says, but oh. it's the, the game that you with the colors and the boops. <laughs> Yeah. It's just called it's just called Simon. <laughs> okay. But okay, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Go ahead. Fair enough. Uh and so he gives him this iron Simon you know, circle. The boops. Yeah, the boops. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives him this iron Simon circle and he's like, put it on your belt. Like, hold on to it. And Will's like, I guess so. That's <laughs> kind of weird, but thanks. He goes back home, and before he goes to sleep, he has like 
almost like a panic attack. Like there's just this intense fear. Um, the wind is picking up. It looks like it's going to snow, but it's kind of scary. Uh, snow falls in through like he, li- he sleeps up in the attic because there's so many kids in the house. Mm-hmm. And like snow comes in through the ceiling at one point. And so his brother Paul comes in and like hangs out with him. And so he's like, okay, this so this this is good. My birthday's gonna be fine, I guess. A little scared about it. And when he wakes up in the morning, he can't wake up his family. Like they're all asleep and they're kind of like they can't hear him, it seems like. They're not gonna wake up when he's calling to them. But he's like, No, it's fine. I love the snow. I'm gonna go out and play in the snow. And he goes out and he realizes that like the world around him is changing. Okay. Okay. It's it, there's like a moment where he's like, oh, it's like that. It's like those dreams where you know that it's not your real life, but in the dream, it's your real life. Yeah, those are. I don't, I really don't like those. I, I really those don't lot. like them either. <laughs> the ones, the dreams I have all the time are there. It's constantly, always the ones where I'm trying to do something and I can't do it fast enough, and it seems like I should just be able to blow through it, but oh, it's no. just taking me forever. That's awful. Which I think is like, it's reflective of my real life anxiety. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. Hold on real quick. I have to go get this thing from Casey. Sure. Keep the train rolling. The tape. Well, should I, I just not. vamp? All right. I'm just going to vamp. Hi, everybody. It's me, Andrew from Overdue. Craig's just gone to go get a box or something. And so it's just you and me for a second. Um, how, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, I'm going to read Black Beauty next. It's about horses. Um, I guess it's about like a really pretty horse. I haven't read any of the book yet, but here's what I think Black Beauty is about. Um, once upon a time, there was an ugly, ugly horse, like an ugly baby horse. And it hatched out of its horse egg and everybody hated it and wanted it to go away forever. And then the horse went to on a journey on a hero's journey and it came back and everyone was like it was there for a while and then it came back and everybody looked at it and was like oh man that horse is still so ugly and then the horse um the horse like let its mane down like let its hair down and took off its its nerdy glasses and everybody realized that the horse had been beautiful all along and then black beauty went to the the horse dance with uh oh hey craig's back all right bye everybody (laughs) where were we oh the dreams Mm -hmm. am i am i gonna be able to edit that out like or should i just leave that in where it was do what you want with it oh no okay (laughs) so he's in this world like he realizes that he's in a different world than his own. And the like the features of the village are not where they should be. Like there's snow on the ground and that's beautiful and everything and the roads are still there. But like he turns around and his house is not there. Like he and he's not like, "Oh god, my family's gone." Okay. <laughs> he just kind of understands that he's in a different time. And it, in that weird like dream way. And All right. He comes across John Smith, who works on the Dawson farm, and it doesn't seem as surprised as I think he should that a dude he knows from his own time is here, like, 
working in a smithy that doesn't exist in his own time. Yeah, there's like, do you think that can just be explained away by the fact that they're children or something? Like, that's kind of a Narnia thing, too, is like they're way less worried than they should be about an alternate dimension that they found in a closet. Uh, I want to actually find... So actually, after he meets John and he meets this evil guy named the Rider, who's uh, the Rider and the Walker are the two forces of dark that he's growing to to meet. He runs into a guy named Merriman. I'll get to how he meets Merriman in a second. But Merriman says to him, minds hold more than they know, particularly yours. And this happens during a scene where he's having Will recount all this knowledge that he shouldn't otherwise know, like about where he is and what's going on. Okay, so Will like knew that this was fine, like in the back of his head somewhere. Yeah, somewhere okay. in his magic brain he knew what was going <laughs> on. Uh so he comes across the rider who like tries to trick him into giving him that like Simon circle that he has. Mm-hmm. And he won't. He like he's like you know, stranger danger and decides not to. Uh, but he knows that the rider's evil, and everyone's also been telling him that the walker is about, and the walker sounds kind of evil also. So he f- sees in the field these just two giant doors, magic doors, just hanging out. <laughs> okay. And if you were a kid in the past, Andrew, I I bet you would go through those doors, right? Well, because past kids, like, they had to do a bunch of work, and they died from... <laughs> Like polio all the time. Yeah, I would. I would go for the magic door every Carpe time. Dia. Yeah, it's got to be better than this. <laughs> I'm the youngest of six. So I don't get anything. I'm going through these doors. Yeah, like, no one will even notice that I'm gone. <laughs> so he he goes through, and he ends up in this like giant stone hall, where he uh, meets an old lady whose name we don't learn, and sure. And Merriman starts telling Will, like, why don't you tell me what you know? Like, what's going on? Sure. And Will starts spouting out the details that he sort of knows and sort of doesn't. And he comes to the understanding that there are these forces called the Dark. And Merriman informs him that the Dark is, in fact, rising. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, the book, like the title of the book? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, we figured it out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, he also tells him that Will is one of the old ones uh and that, like 11 though he doesn't sound very old no but he is recently like on his 11th birthday is when he like becomes an old one like when okay. he uh goes through magic puberty i guess it's like a bar mitzvah yes for, for magicians <laughs> and merriman informs him that he is to be the last of the old ones and that the circle is complete and that now they will like be able to find the tools they need to beat the dark one and once and for all. So Will Stanton is the sign seeker, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And that iron circle is the first of the six signs that he needs to collect to defeat the dark. Uh, now that's, that's a bit of a caveat there because in the dark is a rising universe, uh, these six signs all joined together is but one of the four things of power, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Capital There's T. There's always a thing of power. Capital T, capital P, the things of power. Okay. Uh, now, only one of them appears in this book, but it's the signs, King Arthur's Grail, um, the a harp of gold, and a crystal sword. Okay. And so those appear in the other 
books of the series. I believe that the book that precedes this one, which is called Oversea Under Stone, uh, is about three children who help find the Holy Grail. So is that, is now a good time to talk about like this book's position in this series because it is the it's the second of five books, mm-hmm. but my understanding is that the first book is a little more like The Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings of the rest of them, and also that like the third book ties the first and second books together and that the first and second like read by themselves work better like on their own yeah i or work fine on their own anyway reading this book you would have no clue that there is another book before it okay cool um except for the fact that on the top of this book <laughs> cover of this book the dark is rising sequence the dark is rising and then there's a giant demon horse so like <laughs> I, I get that it's part of a series, and I get that it shares the name of the series, so you'd think it's the first book, um, and it's certainly written as if it were. My understanding is that the the three Drew children, that's their last name, of Oversea Understone, yeah, they kind of get woven into the other books. Green Witch, The Grey King, and Silver on the Tree. Okay. Um, and this book does close, even though... Spoiler alert, they do kind of win the day in The Dark is Rising. Does the dark rise or is it still rising? The dark does in fact rise. Okay. Uh, and I think the exact quote from one of the old ones, that they say, uh, it has been vanquished in this encounter um, and that they have to collect these things of power for future future journeys. So you won the battle, you didn't win the war. Yeah, yeah standard fantasy fantasy stuff yeah so let me just read to you uh how merriman sets up the basic like here's the lay of the land for this book okay and this is a good example of how the old ones speak to will throughout the whole book uh for the dark the dark is rising the walker is abroad the rider is riding they have woken the dark is rising and the last of the circle is come to claim his own and the circles must now all be joined the white horse must go to the hunter and the river take the valley there must be fire on the mountain fire under the stone fire over the sea fire to burn away the dark for the dark the dark is rising that's some intense stuff I hear, you know, I hear word on the street is that the dark is rising. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard. Unconfirmed reports are saying that the dark is rising. More at 11. So this it, this opening little sequence with uh, Will, the old lady, and Merriman kind of sets up the journey, Will's journey for the book. He has to collect these six uh, signs. He's already got the one. And if he gets all six of them, they can forge them together into a circle, which will help like defeat the writer. He's the immediate bad guy of this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, Merriman has kind of a like, not quite Gandalf because he's more of a direct mentor to Will, but he is like the oldest of the old ones, has set a bunch of stuff in motion. And over the course of this book, like some of those things come back to bite them a little bit. Do we know anything about like the nature of the old ones at this point, except that they're like old? Are they are they gods? Are they no? They, okay, so just they old dudes. They are immortal. Ladies, okay. they they are immortal, um, and they're not quite human, but they've been around forever to try and ward off the dark. Of course, they have, uh, and they can use their magic 
which is old magic. And they, uh-huh. <laughs> what other kind of magic would it be? Uh, and sometimes they will borrow like wild magic to help to help their forces. Um, and it, the magic in this book is tied to language. It's tied to what they call old speech. And there's a lot of sections in this book. I know. <laughs> Susan, Susan, hey, it's me, your editor. Um, have you thought, let me, can we expense you a thesaurus? No. Can we get you another adjective, maybe? It's so good. I love it. There's, okay. So, like, that's a, Okay. I'll, let's just lay out the overarc of the plot because then we can come back to some of this stuff. Um, the old plot. The old plot. All right. Uh, they, the whole arc of it is that he has to find these six things. He can He gets go. He gets pulled in and out of the past. Mm-hmm. And the old ones. They explain the time travel at some point. Old ones don't really time travel in a uh, Back to the Future sort of way. Sure. They have. They are always and always have been in every time that they choose to be in. So, like, he goes to this party in the past where they give him one of the signs of power. And they also, like, dump a bunch of magic knowledge into his head in a scene that I'll talk about. But the this guy, Hawken, tells him, yeah, if someone wrote down this scene, they would report that you were here. And then in the future, that book would still exist and, like, you're you would have been there. Like, okay. You, um, but they don't affect change in the same way. There's no like butterfly effect of like, oh well, you changed this word in the past, and now no one invented phones or something like that. <laughs> you stepped on a butterfly, and now androids are more and, popular than iPhones. And now, and now we don't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so over the course of the book, the writer summons this giant like winter storm. To try and like basically freeze all of England into submission, and hopefully, I don't know that he can kill Will Stanton because old ones can't be killed, I guess. Uh-huh. But he could cause harm to Will's family and generally like hurt humanity in the effort to get these signs. And there's like a whole business where the the dark can't really use the same magic as the old ones, but they can still like mess with it. Uh, and grow more powerful by it. Sure. So, lo and behold, with the help of the old ones and with with his own like coming to power that he has, uh, will eventually saves the day by collecting all of the signs, and he uh, summons another like creature character from English folklore called Hearn the Hunter, and that's the kind of the, some of the wild magic I talked to, and they help banish off. Uh, the rider okay so that's like the whole that's the big picture there's some pretty small like scenes that are actually really cool that i want to talk about but i did want to get to your notion that the terms in this book are pretty simplistic okay like there's the old ones who speak old speech and they practice old magic (laughs) there are the dark and it's the rider who ha- who like uses a human name sometimes, but he's really just the rider. What's his human name? Uh, Mister Menthol or something. I don't know what his name oh, is. Okay. It's like he's using it as a pseudonym. It's the Marlboro Man. Yeah. <laughs> it's, this book is really about the dangers of smoking. Uh, and there's like the old ones are servants of the light. It's it's not even as uh, 
There's not even there's not a lexicon anywhere near something like Harry Potter or anything like that. It's pretty right. simple, and I think in a way that so even I mean Harry Potter is pretty simple too. So that's that's not a super high bar that this book has to clear, right? I suppose, but the magic is also really. For my money, underdefined in a way that serves the book, but I think sets it apart from a lot of other fantasy I've read. Uh, the first two magics that Will learns is kind of the ability to do telepathy a la The Giver, where you can just like... Where you can transfer your memories to somebody? Yeah. Merriman's like, all right, just clear your mind like you're in a boring class in school. And Will's like, okay. <laughs> Done. And Merriman transmits like an image into his head. And he's like, okay, now you do it to me. And Will does it to him. And Merriman can like recount it to the detail. Like a, it's a ring that his dad made and he can describe every single aspect of it. Okay. So that's the one thing. He's like, oh, that's like telepathy, huh? Uh, and Merriman's like, it's a little different than that. <laughs> Now, do you think that Cooper made these rules pretty vague so as to leave herself wiggle room for how they work in like later in this book and in future books? Because I know that's something that Harry Potter ran into a lot is she set up all these pretty like strictly defined rules for like how magic works and, and how this whole universe works. And then I think later on in the series started having to kind of make up exceptions and things like to write herself out of out of corners yeah it's it's pretty nebulous and I, I think it does serve serve the book because there wouldn't otherwise be time for him to like learn a bunch of spells and stuff like he doesn't need to worry about that it's really he doesn't have to go to potions class no and, and he doesn't need to like misuse a potion which then like causes something else to happen right and then we have to explain why that person's immune to potion mess ups or whatever uh so the second power that he learns is that he can control fire and the way he does it is just by basically telling it what to do like he can tell a flame to go out he can tell it to come back and in general flame and light are really important over the course of the book that's um, a pretty cool power yeah like if you could put that on your resume like i can boss around fire <laughs> You'd be the fire chief, at least in like no time, I think. But when they use it, it sometimes it isn't just like normal flame. It becomes like just awesome light. Like okay. it just becomes like a rock concert of magic. Uh, also a good marketable also skill, though. A good skill. You gotta get them get them pyrotechnics. When did Van Halen hire that eleven-year-old British boy? What's he doing over there? <laughs> I don't know, but this show is great. <laughs> show rules. Give me more cocaine. Who's that evil guy on the horse standing next to them? Um, and so, like the 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 dark is usually personified by like crazy awful noise, um, evil birds, rooks that fly around and attack people. Of course, it's always evil birds and like wind and thunder. And the couple times throughout the book where they get quote unquote attacked by the dark. It's usually just um, really nebulous what's happening to them. It's like they feel awful. They're being attacked by the dark, and it hurts. So and does the dark does the dark have a physical manifestation other than like the Black Rider guy? So okay, and the birds and stuff, or is it all like a mental? 
spiritual magical thing uh a little bit of the latter and sometimes the smoke monster from lost is there like sometimes <laughs> it's a giant pillar of smoke out of which the dark rider will emerge like he's pretty out of which the dark will rise yes the dark rises so often got it uh oh so th- when the other big magic thing that happens in this book it's centered around language as i said and th- there are a lot of times when old ones are speaking to Will, like in plain sight of other people, and old speech is supposed to be like gibberish. And you can also say it like through your mind to other people. You can just like text it to each other in your mind. Uh, <laughs> and because there are old ones that live in this village, and there are these roads that are called like, I think, are they literally called old ways? I think they are. I hope that they, let's just assume. <laughs> and they're about like right. power node roads or whatever. They can, um, they meet these people and like they'll be like oh oh you're buying a christmas tree today that's great nice to meet you will's dad and then they'll like lean over to will and be like the walker is abroad and you should put these holly berries in your window so that the dark can't get in and then they'll be like oh merry christmas everyone like hey how's it going oh they say happy christmas because they're british excuse me right of course yeah um so there's like allies of the light scattered throughout the town but when he goes back in time and he goes to this party. This is before he gets the third sign, I believe. And Merriman's there. He's got a dude named Hawken, who's a pretty big player in this book. And you find out that Hawken is not an old one. He's a guy from the 13th century who was, like, saved by Merriman in his time and has pledged his allegiance to him. That's pretty old, though. I guess not... not- relatively speaking but just like objectively 600 years old is pretty old well at this point they're in the 19th century so he's only 500 years old but he has been brought forward in time he's not actually that old hawken time traveled him gotcha uh which he's like going around at this party being like super excited by people wearing velvet and like excited about all these gas lamps and will's like gas lamps geez yeah but hawken timey rubes <laughs> you, you know if they you know how New Yorkers respond to tourists? I think that's how it would be. Like, if we if we ever got time travel and we went forward in time and we were all just, like, going around being like, oh, man, all these, like, all these iRobot implants and, like, drones and stuff. Oh, man, it's so cool. And all the people would just, they would shake their heads and roll their eyes at us because we were time tourists. I imagine that's what that's what this is like. Time is rising. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so Will's at this party, and they're all excited to see him because, of course, he's an old one, and they all know who he is. And Merriman says, like, okay, we have to teach you some stuff. We have to teach you the grammary. And I think this very purposefully shares the root of the word grammar from French. Right. He has to teach him the language and the knowledge of old magic. And so he goes to this clock... This grandfather clock, and he an old clock, an old clock, and Hawkins with him, and he. This is Merriman doing this. Uh, Ian McShane, if you've seen the film The Seeker, uh, and he puts his hand on Hawkins' head, and then like reaches into the clock and pulls out this like super old book. This is like a a very important scene because later you learn that the book was put there by merriman with a spell that the only way he could pull it out was if he had his hand like on a normal mortal man okay okay 
And the reason he did that was because he needed to hide the book in a way that if the dark ever got control of him, he they like they could prevent him from taking it out by killing that person. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you were Hawken and you found out that that was why you got plucked 400 years into the future, you might be a little pissed, huh? Yeah, especially, like, <laughs> like, what do you do after that? Do you just have to hang out in this weird time that isn't yours? Exactly. Ugh. So they're at this, like, so after this book thing happens and Will gets locked in, like, a hyperbolic time chamber where he reads this book and learns how to fly and learns all sorts of other powers that he can use as an old one. And then the book gets destroyed because he's the last of the old ones, you know, just like just like you do, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, makes sense. So then at this party, they there's a scene where Merriman and Will are watching Hawken interact with this young girl named Maggie, who is actually from Will's time. So they they're pretty sure that she's a witch and she's like not she's working for the dark uh, and she starts seducing Hawken into like telling her secrets of the people who are working for the light and so hawken ends up like turning and working for the dark because he feels like he's been used um and he becomes the walker and like has a has a role to play as one of the bad guys in this book later on okay um and there's like there's some pretty that's one of the ways that they actually humanize merriman because otherwise he could just be this like there's that trouble where how do you humanize or or make or add vulnerability to one of these like all-powerful characters and one of the ways to do it is to have them like emotionally invested in someone who can be harmed who can you know do unexpected things yeah right um later uh you learn that hawken was one of the ones who was like being chased by the dark because he was carrying one of the signs uh and hates them for like keeping him alive for hundreds of years to carry the sign until Will Stanton could have it, which seems pretty <laughs> awful. Uh, and finally, like, he has his redemptive moment and and they let him pass, which is kind of cool. But Okay. So you said earlier that there was, like, one really good moment where this book pulls in stuff from, like, British and, and Welsh myth and history. I know the... Arthurian legend is a big deal for Cooper and and comes up again in these books like what's the what's what did you want to talk about and like how well integrated is it into the rest of this book's mythology in this book specifically there's only one major reference to Arthurian legend and it starts and you don't know that this is where it starts but for (laughs) Christmas Will gets a present from his brother Stephen who's abroad in the West Indies and usually Stephen's really good about giving him both a present for his birthday and for Christmas. And he, so he includes a letter with his present. He's like, I'm so sorry I missed your birthday. This present was like too crazy. I needed to give it to you. And an old man in the West Indies like grabbed Stephen Stanton by the shoulders and said, you need to send this home to your brother. Spouts a bunch of stuff about old ones that his brother's like, I don't know what he was talking about. But I need to send you this like antler, this like antler man head from a, from <laughs> West Indies Carnival. So uh-huh. Carnival, excuse me. So it's like a mask that you could wear, and it kind of looks like a dude, but it has owl feathers on it, and it has antlers. 
And Will's like, this is crazy. What is it? In my head, I kept seeing like a luchador mask, which just imagine a luchador mask with deer antlers and yes. you're fine. Okay. Uh, I'm there. So that's so that gets like washed away in the water at one point and Will's really upset about it. It comes back on this island in the Thames after the snow has abated and uh, it's just rain and it's this crazy storm. This boat comes up out of the water and a, an antler head, not unlike the mask, is on it. And there is a dead king in the boat um, holding one of the rings uh, one of the like seeker sign things that Will is missing, the last one, the one of water. Neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so he goes and he gets it, and it's he's like buried with all this like jewelry and engraved stuff and you know treasure and all that stuff. And then they get off the boat because it's like it's gonna sink or something. They're not quite sure. It's a little dangerous. And Will's like, "Who is that guy? Like, I feel bad, like taking stuff from a dead king. Like, you're not supposed to do that." And Merriman's like, "It's fine. He had the sign for a reason." Um, and Will goes, "Who was it?" And he's like, "Maybe we. I think you know who it is, but maybe let's not use his name." Mm-hmm. Oh, it's King Arthur. I think oh yeah, that guy. I think it was King Arthur. Uh, and then the dark like blows up the boat and lights it on fire. And Will's like, oh, no, how could they do that? Merriman's like, it's fine. They're giving him the burial he deserved. Like, Vikings would have lit his boat on fire <sighs> and set him out to sea as it is. Because it's, it's King Arthur. Because it's King Arthur. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's King Arthur. It's King Arthur. Shh. Uh, so he sneaks in there, and they reference the other, like, they reference the Grail later when they talk about the other things of power that they need. But yeah, that's that's kind of how that works. That's, okay. He sneaks in there. And apparently Hearn the Hunter, uh, who I alluded to earlier, who eventually becomes a dude with the antler head, like ears and everything, mm-hmm. um, who chases off the rider with this like ghost army of devil hounds. Uh, this book's crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, he is also from like Celtish, Celtic folklore mm-hmm. or something. Um, there's one other bit of the magic that I actually think is under like underdeveloped in this book, but it I heard it I like I read it and I was immediately reminded of a thing that our choir director told me Andrew so I'm gonna I'm gonna share this with you real yeah hit quick. me um, there's a moment where they Merriman and Will have to fend off that Maggie woman uh, the who's the witch and. He says, remember the two things that saved you. Uh, First, I knew her real name. The only way to disarm one of the creatures of the dark is to call him or her by his real name. Names that they keep very secret. It's Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. Then as well as the name, there was the road, you know the name of this track, and that's when they talk about the old ways. But he's talking about how the old ones kind of keep their name secret, and to know someone's name is to be able to use magic uh, to control them or affect them. And that crops up once later for Will, but I expected it to be a bigger part of the book uh, explicitly. It might be so. like a bigger part of the series yes, later on. It's a, that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of rule you don't establish unless it's going to be some important. weird climactic moment um, later on. But we were on choir tour, maybe my sophomore or junior year, and I was having lunch with our choir director. And I don't know if you remember this. This is Doc Locke from Kenning College. He's a great guy. Um, I don't know if you remember, Andrew, every first day of classes, he had everyone's name memorized. Yes. 
And he would do this by looking through like the photo IDs that they make you take on freshman orientation for any new students or whatever. Right. Um, but he exp- I, he referenced a fantasy series, and I don't know if it was this one, when he told us that to know someone's name is to like have a certain amount of power over them or insight into who they are. And that always stuck with him. So like it affected his teaching philosophy of learning people's names before he even like knows them. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, so so one, yeah, I don't I don't recall what book series it was. I know that's not that's not a notion that's unique to this book. Okay. Um like like the Rumpelstiltskin thing being the Sure, sure. the like the mother of all examples, I guess. Is there is some notion that, yeah, knowing somebody's name gives you some certain amount of power over them. And yeah, as a practical teaching tool, I think like you, you people had to try out to get into this choir. But there are other choirs at that school that were not that didn't have yep quite like like the people in it weren't so serious about singing like as a as a thing. Like maybe they were doing it to get like, a you know, their arts credit or whatever it was. And he would learn all the those people's names too, and so if you go into that class, like you're gonna you're gonna get a credit and you're gonna get out, like you're gonna mumble your way through a bunch of songs and then leave. Um, like I like the the first day of classes always feels like a waste of time mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Like mm-hmm. you, it's always like handing out a syllabus and and you don't actually get a chance to do anything. But if the professor like knows your name already, then you automatically get the sense that like they're on top of everything and you're not going to get away with anything. Yeah, like in a class of 50. Yeah. And easily 10 or 15 of them are new people. Mm-hmm. Like, man. Well, and then for the, the community choir is what I was talking about. Oh, he yeah. Did for, he did it for that, too, which was like two or three times as large. That's crazy. And yeah, like maybe he's know. an old one. He might be an old one. I mean, maybe old he, he he might object to us at calling him an old one. I don't know if he <laughs> listens, but <laughs> that's true. That's very true. I don't mean that to be a knock on him. Um, but yeah, it's... yeah, no, that 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 it, it absolutely makes sense. And yeah, you, that's that's it's cool that that this made you think of that because yeah, yeah they are definitely connected. So the we can go out on this, Andrew. I kind of just wanted to get your opinion on. Why do all these fantasy people keep entrusting the fate of the universe to children and people who don't know what's going on? And like, why? Like, this is foretold. Like, this kid's gonna be the last one, and as soon as he's ready, like, we're gonna start the train rolling. But like, and there's always a prophecy about that, I suppose. Um, but why does that? They should know better. They should get someone with more experience. I've got, yeah, I've got two answers for you. Okay. The first answer is that maybe it's about um, intellectual openness. Okay. I guess like you're, you are more open to new ideas. Like maybe if you took an adult and shot him back in time, he, he or she would have formed this idea that this stuff isn't possible and it would have just like broken them to have to do this like they're not they're not as flexible they're not as open-minded they tried it and they just left a bunch of like mentally broken people in the past who could right yeah so that's that's like okay that's the one side of it and then the other side of it is ageism well there's (laughs) what are old people gonna get their fantasy shot 
Yeah, it's super ageist. You just assume that, oh, yeah, young people can come in and disrupt the past. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, maybe you do want that experience. Why don't you why don't you give an older person a try, fantasy authors? From well, from the author's perspective, I'm sure. Why there's... can't I read a book about a grandma who goes back in time and get like learns about magic and then saves the world? You're a wizard, grandma. It's time to get your wand and go to wizard school, grandma. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm <laughs> I'm a lifelong learner at Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> Hogwarts Community College. <laughs> I think one of the things that that does, and it goes back to the the Margaret Edwards Edwards Award that I referenced at top. I was actually reminded of like Buffy when I was thinking about this. The for the reader who is ostensibly in their you know end of single digits into tween and teen years, uh, a lot of it comes down to like this character who only knows their own little life, being told that there's a much bigger world out there that they kind of have to humble themselves to and prioritize that like maybe there's bigger there's bigger issues than you and That's like what you're going to get for christmas you want as a kid though right like you kind of hope or think that there That's is true. some secret world there that there like you just need to figure out the right way to peel reality back from that and then you discover it and i think that's that's why kids are so willing to believe in, in magic and in other stuff. And like the, the adult lies like mm-hmm. uh, Santa Claus and the Hugh fairy and stuff <laughs> like they, they want something beyond what they see every day to be like the reality of things. And eventually you like outgrow that and yeah. your desire for that maybe goes away a little bit. Yeah. But. And what this book only has a hint of, there's like one or two lines where uh, Will kind of expresses to Merriman how he kind of wishes he could just be a kid again because the way they talk about being an old one, he isn't just like human anymore. <laughs> like he's this like unearthly god boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it doesn't have the rejection of the call or the tension of the calling that something like Buffy does, where it's like, I'm trying to be a teen, do teen things, and these demons keep showing up, and you're telling me I can't go out on dates because I have to kill all these demons. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't, at least in the scope of this book, there is not, that's not the the driving force. Though I also see that in, in when those characters are just slightly older. Um, so you, like... In terms of fantasy series that you've read, and I don't know, like I read, you know, I read Tolkien, I read um, the Lloyd Alexander books, which I thought were really great. Um, I read a bunch of like the Brian Jakes, like the Redwall stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your context for like fantasy, like young adults or children's fantasy fiction is, but like where does this fit in for you? It, like as, as far as what you know. It's it's funny. As you say that, I'm struggling to come up with what my bedrock is for that stuff because i feel like i grew up steeped in fantasy but i'm having a hard time telling you what if the i don't know that it was books yeah i mean yeah it could be movies it could be tv it could be video games i think video games probably is Mm -hmm. is like a lot of your particular context i know i only have the stuff i have because of my parents because they had tolkien and it's it's one of those things, and, and this is if if we ever have kids, not we, you and me, but like <laughs> if we ever have like an overdue baby, um, 
That's a stretch goal for the Patreon, I think. Yeah, as so we get a thousand dollars, we'll just we'll buy a baby. <laughs> but that that impulse to share the stuff that you like and to watch yeah. your kids also like it, I think I I can see them doing that for me with Tolkien stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then from there it went to like Narnia and um and the lord alexander stuff and the redwall stuff and i think later i read like the wizard of earth sea i think that was um mm. Le Guin's stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i've i think i was reading star wars books i was thinking yeah, i was too no, busy I, reading yeah. star wars books and reading <laughs> like ender's game books um reading stephen king uh, not when i was like 10 but uh in the age where i might have moved up to something like wheel of time um, I was not reading a lot of fantasy. I read some yeah, like D and D books, uh, some of the like, Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance Which books. There is like yeah, there is that's like a, rich, a, a yeah. fully realized fiction behind that stuff. This that's kind of impressive, I guess. Yeah, this to me seems like it's aimed at a slightly younger audience, though I wouldn't say that the language is particularly uh, simple. It's actually I found it pretty well written. Unless you, unless you're describing. I guess old things. I guess so, but I what I like I kind of found that really charming in its simplicity. Uh I did have trouble keeping the family of Stanton children straight. Most there's six of them, right? Cuz there's six of them. He actually finds out that they one of them died when he was really young, so he's the seventh of a seventh son, oh, which is like a folklore thing for being magical, I guess. Um but I, they didn't get a lot of. They don't get a lot of time. I remember his brother Paul, because Paul, I think, in future books might kind of figure out what's going on. You get a sense of that. It's. I find the simplicity of the rule set, for lack of a better word, actually kind of refreshing and puts the focus on Will in a book where I actually, a lot of his job is to set up the people who know what they're doing for success. <laughs> uh, he doesn't single-handedly like banish an evil person or anything like that. He kind of just has to be willing to to take the next step in the journey that they lay out for him. Um, they give him a somewhat cryptic rhyme, and he has the courage to find out what the next line in that rhyme means. Okay. And so I, I think there is... That's really what it's about. It's about like... You're an important boy, and you're supposed to do important things that are going to make you feel a little different from everyone else, but that's okay. Let's save the world, boy. <laughs> and I could get behind that. I kind of, I'm interested, I would be interested to see what else she did with the magic in these books. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, how much of the stuff you thought was a little underdeveloped, like, how much of that gets more fully developed in the three subsequent books and then maybe the one prequel? Yeah. Because um, for all the people that I've said I don't, I have a hard time keeping straight. The actual main character list is pretty simple in terms of Merriman, the Rider, Will, and Hawken are like the four or five main people. Yeah, but yeah, I dug it. I think I think if you're looking for uh, a series for a kid to kind of cut their teeth on, it's actually a really good one. Okay. Um, and and see how they respond. So great. A good recommendation. Thank you, Lena. This is actually Children's Book Week, so I'm glad that we were able to talk about a YA book with such a good history. Man, it always sneaks up on us, huh? Yeah. I kind of, I knew in the back of my brain, like I was in a dream and I was in a different world that it was was Children's (laughs) Book Week. Uh, Andrew, what are you reading next week? 
Um, I'm going to read Black Beauty. Great. If It's about a pretty horse. If you have a pretty horse or have feelings about pretty horses, all of the pretty horses, you can write to us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank all the folks reaching out to us on social media this week. That includes Julie, Kelsey, Erica, Philip, Dennis, Ken, Ellen, Rebecca, Bookish Girl, Mr. J, Catherine, Lucas, Shelley, Karen, Graham, Melissa, TJ, and Sophie. Uh, we had got some good responses to the question from our recent bonus episode about what three countries in which you would like to eat, pray, love. Um, so go listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Andrew, if people want to find that, where should they go? Uh, they should go to OverduePodcast.com. We've got all of our past episodes up there as well as links to our iTunes Google Play, Stitcher, and RSS feeds. Those are all different ways that you can use to subscribe to the show based on what, I guess, conveyance you prefer for your podcasts. <laughs> we also have links to a Spreaker, our podcast host, and HeadGum, our podcast network. They are both um, instrumental in getting our show from our dumb mouths to your dumb ears every week. And um, if you want to support the show, you can go to our website and then click on that Patreon link or just go to patreon.com slash pod. Um, that's a way to support us in a, like in an ongoing way every month. Um, we've gotten quite a few new patrons recently. And if you donate at the $5 a month level or above, we will bump one of your requests up to the top of the list. Uh, Dark is Rising was one. The Black Beauty is another. Um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which we did last week was another one. Like we've been, we've been trying to knock them out now that a uh, wedding season is over. It's true. Um, what else? The other one, else? Yeah, the, another way you can support the show, as Andrew might have mentioned, is going to iTunes and leaving a rating or review. I was checking us in the rankings this weekend. There are a couple food podcasts ahead of us in the art section. I think we can top them. I want to thank our hardcore cellomen, Jellington Wellington, uh, and Ten Crane Eight and Arias Runners for recently giving us reviews. But I think we can beat those food podcasts because guess what? Books are food for the soul. Ooh, and for the brain. And for the brain. Books are food for the soul and your brain. Yeah. Help us so beat stop those e- food Stop jerks. eating food. Stop eating read food. More, read start, more books. Start eating books. <laughs> okay, everybody. Um, we'll be back next Monday with Black Beauty. Until then, uh, eat a book and try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast. Uh, <laughs> Laura just walked through the podcast. She's taking bus tokens. I don't know. Oh, geez. Okay. Have, have fun on the bus. Have fun on the bus. Okay, bye, she says. Anyway, right. oh, this this podcast. Man, you're gonna, you gotta have a fun job editing. Oh God. So Why don't I just cuss a few times to like make <laughs> it fun. <laughs> <laughs>